0: I want to uh, even though he is not here I want to kind of give a a shout out to dad if you were here last week you know my um, (laughs) fill-in was my father and I appreciate him uh, him being here as I've joked before I'm still training him but he's coming along and uh, and so I I do appreciate that and he's gonna be here at 11 o'clock and I'll, uh, I'll certainly extend that uh, word of appreciation to him some of you said you got out early last week um no, that's good you know what happens when you get out early those minutes bank <laughs> so then i get carryover if i go long so um don't boo me um but uh and it is not lost on me the irony of the fact that um the vacation bible school theme this year was shipwrecked on the week that Tony and the kids and I were on a cruise. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we, had to, uh, we had to take our vacation early this year, which conflicted, and I was very sad about that with Vacation Bible School, but it, and I'm not exaggerating, it was the only week this summer that we had. Tony uh, is starting her master's program in a couple weeks, so I haven't bragged on her, um, She's put me through two, so she figured it was her turn. So, uh, so she's going to be starting classes, so we had to kind of, we had to work, or, work around that. But it was, it was, it is, and it is, uh, but it's good to be back. We just got back yesterday. I was a little worried. I thought we were going to be scrambling because we, uh, we were coming back from um, Costa Maya was our last stop in, in Mexico. and We had one sea day before we got back to the, to the port yesterday at Port Canaveral. And But what happened uh, was we were leaving Costa Maya, there was a medical emergency on board, a passenger, I don't know, it, they obviously don't need to share that with us, so they had to go back to Cozumel and let the passenger, get the passenger to medical care, and so they were sl- it was slowing us down, and then apparently in the night as we were heading back, they had some propulsion issues, and I thought, uh-oh, I've seen this newsreel, and um, <laughs> so I'm thinking, if we don't make it back, who do I call, <laughs> you know? I Kimla's told me she's really looking forward to preaching a sermon. So I thought, you know, I'll give I'll give Kimla a call. But fortunately we got back. We were we were much much later than than expected, but that's okay. That was just another meal we got to have. So um anyway, so it's 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 good good to be back. We we do celebrate um Father's Day today. Um and and I was Thinking not so much about fathers, but, but all of us as, as kids, as we fall on a continuum. Uh, how many of you are firstborn? How many of you are oldest? I know some of you are only, but if you have siblings, how many are your oldest? Okay. Um, how many of you are the youngest? All right, wow, a pretty even split. Okay, put your hands back. Oldest, oldest. All right. How many of you think that your younger siblings had it much easier than you did? Some of you raised your hand for the first time when I asked that question. How many of you think it got easier for your, for your younger brothers, or younger sisters? Right, yeah, right, they're harder on, parents are harder on firstborns, aren't they? We know that they are. Um, you know, firstborns have it rough. For instance, like some firstborns, they don't get their first car till they're in college, where their younger siblings might get it when they're still in high school. Explain that. Some older siblings have a curfew where their younger ones don't have a curfew at all by the time they're in high school. I'm doing therapy here, okay? Um, no, we know. We know that because that, we do it as parents. We do it. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's that joke, but it's, it's partially true. You know, the first, first time you become a parent, the, the child's a, a porcelain doll. I, mean, I remember when Ryan was born, we were so gentle. We were so careful um, because we didn't want to break him. And, and as they, you know, they, they drop the pacifier and you like s- boil water to sterilize it before you give it back to them, right? You don't do that as they keep going. The more kids you have, the less, you know, the, by, the, by that last child, however many you have, it's like, pff, <laughs> here. You know, I mean, that's, that's just the way it goes. That, that's, 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 that's life that's, that's inevitably. So, so it does kind of get, for a lot of people, maybe not for everybody. But, you know, I, it becomes, there's a comedian that joked about his daughter, his youngest daughter, and, and he's like, you know, I want you to go to your room at your earliest convenience. Just whatever you feel like, you know, I'm going to count to 1,500, you know, that kind of thing, that, that just that, that continuum. And so there is, there's, there's studies, and you've read them and you've seen them, of the, the contrast between, say, firstborn and and young, I know some of you are middle children. Um, as we all learned in the Brady Bunch years ago, nobody cares about the middle children. So it's I'm just teasing. I'm just please don't be offended. I'm only kidding. Um, I'm hoping my brothers will listen to this because um, if it's not obvious, I'm the oldest. And those of you probably most of you probably know that. So, but there, but there are studies. For instance, a majority of U.S. presidents have been firstborn children. Firstborn children tend to be more driven uh, a little bit more of a rule followers Uh, they they tend to to excel and these are stereotypes so again I'm not saying this always applies but they tend to to fall into more leadership positions so a majority of um, U.S. presidents have been firstborn children 21 of the first 23 astronauts that were sent in space were firstborn children uh, 43 of the top um, CEOs in the country are firstborn children. So it, it tends to just be, again, it is a stereotype. It doesn't always be because, here, here's why I'll be confessional. They say, like, your firstborn children are usually your highest academic achievers. Well, my, my younger brother, the middle one, actually was, got better grades than I did. Uh, so it doesn't always play out. That's not much that was close. But... Um, <laughs> So, so that's, whereas younger children are seen to be um, a little more rebellious. Uh, yeah, I, I saw you, Gareth. I was looking at you, bud. <laughs> a little more rebellious. Uh, they tend to be sometimes more spoiled. This is where all us older siblings go, yep, exactly. Uh, they are also seen to be more creative and free-spirited. Uh, But uh, the the birth order book, I love the quote, and I I wanted to throw this in because I'm the oldest. It says, um, Kevin Lehman, Dr. Kevin Lehman wrote the birth order book uh, that you've probably seen over the years. He also wrote The First Born Advantage, which I haven't read, but I should. Um, But he said this, younger children are manipulative, social, outgoing, great at sales, and they get away with murder as kids and they know how to get around people now again not always true not always true I know but it's fun to think about this contrast in personalities now why why am I going there because the scripture today deals with the probably the most familiar story that that contrasts the different personalities of an oldest and a youngest child and that is the story of the prodigal son the, the oldest and the youngest. And so let's, let's go to that because we see this dynamic that, that, is, that is studied here you know, following oldest, um, steady as the oldest where, the, the, where the, um, the youngest tends to be a little more rebellious. Okay, that, here we go. Right here. Luke chapter 15. Begin, let's, let's begin at verse 11. Jesus is telling stories here. So this is the third story. He's told the parable of the lost sheep. He's told the parable of the lost coin. And now we come to the prodigal son, which could be the parable of the lost son. Okay? It says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said, Father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. As he had, after he had spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My father, my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we pray that a story that is familiar to us would become new again, that a story that that so many of us know would would speak a fresh word as we begin to understand what what it is you wanted to teach us about who you are and our place in your family. Lord, speak to us in these moments. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So it is an interesting title, story, the story, the parable of the, the prodigal son. And, and as I kind of referenced, referenced earlier, it's interesting in these, these three stories that Jesus tells about um, lostness, if you will, sheep, coin, and son, that, that they all reference the, the, the low point of the story, because each story ends with, with foundness. The, the, the sheep is, is brought back to the fold, the coin is recovered, the son comes home, but yet we don't call it the parable of the, of the returning son. It's, it's the parable of the, the prodigal, the, the rebellious, the, 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 the squandering son. Is there are other ways that, that we could, could reference that. But, but the heart of the story, we've got to understand, really is not about the son. He's the catalyst. He's the, the one that puts the, the, the story into motion, puts the events in motion. But Jesus doesn't tell the story because he really wants us to focus on the son. Because if that was the case, it would just be a moralistic story about a son who comes home again, about a son who makes bad choices and comes home again. And and that's really not part of of what Jesus wants to to teach. It's not the, the core of what Jesus wants us to understand. The story at its heart is about the father. The story is about the father's response to this prodigal son. And Jesus wants us to get a picture of who God is. I mean, that, that's why he tells the story. It's, it's, it should be fairly clear. If it's not, let me make it clear. The, the father of the story represents our heavenly father. The, the prodigal son in many ways, in some ways each son represents us at various places. But, but Jesus wants us to, to kind of get, get an understanding of, of who God is. Because that is a real important um, clarification for us. You know, one of the, the questions that we tend to ask a lot of, uh, when we get to know people, or, or at least kind of inquire about, is this question, um, do you believe in God? Do, do you believe in God? That, that, you know, in relationships and stuff, will come up inevitably, I think, if you get to know somebody. You know, do you have a level of faith? Do you believe in God? And, and while that's an important question, I don't think that is the most important question. At least not for me. Because if you say to me, if, if we just bump into each other and we have a conversation, you say, yeah, I believe in God. That really doesn't tell me anything. Because uh, a lot of faiths believe in God. I, I taught for a number of years, I've referenced before, I taught world religions at uh, the, the state college level. And so we would study a number of faiths from all around the world in faith traditions. There's a lot of faith um, that believes in God or a supreme being. Now, what is, what is far more important to me is what kind of a God do you believe in? You know, who do you believe God to be? Do you, because some faiths believe in a very vengeful, wrathful, angry God. A God that is, that is there to pounce when you sin, fall short, or disobedient, whatever the tenets of the faith is. And there are Christians that have that, that worldview. And, and then there, there are faiths that believe in a very distant, disconnected God. A God that put things in motion and is removed and very impersonal. But, but Jesus tells this story because he wants to create a very powerful image of, of what God looks like. And, and who God is. And it's a very personal and very powerful and very gracious and graceful God full of of grace so he tells the story and the son the younger son puts it into motion by going to his father and basically asking for his inheritance in the Jewish tradition the eldest son got two shares of the inheritance and every subsequent son got one share of the inheritance now in a situation where there are just two boys as is this the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance of, from the father, and the younger son would get a third of the estate. But that's what happened when the father died. That's the way inheritance works. We know this the same way as today. You get it? If there's inheritance, it is distributed at the passing of the patriarch or matriarch of, of the family. Well, we've talk, I've talked about this before. The younger son is basically saying, Dad, I want it now. I don't want to wait for you to die. It's not happening fast enough. That that, that should sound harsh, but that's that's what the actions imply. That is exactly what the actions imply. Now, you know, it it sounds, oh, nobody would think that, but but he does. I don't want to wait for you to die, Dad. Give me mine now. Again, spoiled and entitled. And so, but here's the thing the Father does the Father gives him. This, most of us would go, heck no. In fact, not only heck no, you don't get anything. That, that's what a lot of us would react at. you think this is for you. How about this? You're out of the will. But, but that's not what the Father does. He gives him a third of the estate. And the scripture says he went to a foreign land. He went to a distant land. And there's symbolism all throughout the story. The, the distant land is an abandonment. He is abandoning the traditions and the faith and the the, the um, values he was raised in. So going to a foreign land is to, to leave the nation of Israel to go to a pagan land to engage in bra- practices and behaviors that were against the, the foundation of who he'd been raised to be. That's exactly what he does. He, he cavorts with, with women, he, he parties it up, he blows it all. You know, it's, it's Vegas. You know, he just, he has a good time. You know, sin city. And then hard times come, and he's got nothing left. And so the Scriptures tell us that he resorts to feeding pigs. Again, symbolism is very, very important. Remember, pigs were unclean animals. So this is meant to say he had sunk as low as he could sink. Whatever that is, if, if I said to you, what's the lowest point you could be at? Uh, whatever that image is for you, that's what Jesus is trying to, to kind of match. He says, well, he would even eat the pig's food. That's how bad it had gotten. And so he realizes that even his father's servants, even the lowest of the house are better off than he's at. So he comes to his senses. I need to return home, but I know I've blown my opportunity. I know that there is no way that I'm going to be received back. So I have to go and fall on my knees and beg for some grace here. Because... The tradition of the faith is not, would not have led to a, to a belief that this story was going to end well. The tradition of the, the rabbis would not have led to the, to the belief that this story was going to end well. What I mean is, Jesus is playing on a story that the listeners, his listeners would have heard before. There was, uh, Jewish scholars have, have found that there was a very, very similar story they would tell about a young man who does exactly this. And when he does return home, he's met with judgment and condemnation from his father. You have made your choices. Live with the result of your decisions. Continue to eat the pig's food. In other words, tough for you. You, you know, you, you made your bed. Now you've got to lie in it kind of thing. That's the story. And in fact, it can get even harsher. In Deuteronomy 21, if you go read Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, 19, 20, and 21 of, the, of that book, you read that part of the, the, the law of the land was that if a son was rebellious to his parents, did not listen to his parents, squandered his opportunities in, in uh, delinquent living, that the son could be put to death. Now, I want you to think about your teenage years. How many of you would still be here <laughs> if you could be stoned for rebellion? Some of you made it, but some, a lot, not, a lot, not a lot of hands went up. So, so the, the point being, this couldn't be more frowned upon. This couldn't be seen as a more, um, a, a more powerful affront to the Father than what this son has done. And he knows it. And so he goes back and he basically begs for grace. But Jesus twists the story. He does this all the time. He takes what he thinks they know. They're tuning out. They're like, yeah, we know how this goes. The father, you know, is mad and he gets judged. But, but no, that's not what he says. He says, while well, the father still saw him, saw him a long way off. And, and there's an implication here. The father's looking for him. Can you imagine? I mean, you can just see the scene where daily the father looks off into the distance just hoping, hoping to see his son return. Some of you know that feeling. You know that as a parent hoping to see whether it's literal or a figurative to see a turn and it says while he was a, f- a far way away the father saw him and the father ran to meet him the father ran to meet him and we got to stop there because again there are things that we lose because the cultural significance has changed Jewish fathers didn't run It was an indignity to run, it was beneath them because a Jewish, a head of the estate, a head of the household would wear long flowing robes. So in order to run, a father would have to hike up the robe and show leg, bear some leg, so he wouldn't trip over the, the robe. Those of you ladies that wear long dresses, you know this feeling, okay? Would have to hike it up and it would expose some of the leg and that was seen as beneath or an indignity father doesn't care he doesn't care about social standards he doesn't care about expectations. he doesn't care what everyone else thinks he knows there's his son and it says that he, he embraces him and he kisses him and and it's an ongoing the, the the greek really implies kind of a context of he smothers him in kisses he just is so happy to see his son. And his son goes into the, to the, the reciting, Lord, our father, I've sinned against you, and, and I just want to be a servant. And the father will hear none of it. And he says, kill the calf, put the ring on him, restore him to his place in the family. It is this image. It's not so much about the son. The repentance is important. The coming back is important. Jesus wants to make that clear. But it's about a father who willingly embraces even his prodigal, rebellious son, brings him back, loves him so much that basically says, you can't be disowned from this family. You can choose to walk away from it, but it's a picture of grace. It's a picture of saying to those who have fallen, Jesus wants those who have made choices in their life, who have walked away from God and in their faith, who have denied their inheritance, if you will, He wants them to know that they have a heavenly Father who is desperate to welcome them home. And that's the picture of grace that we get. This Father who is so lavish in His grace, who is so lavish in His forgiveness, who is so lavish in His love, that as soon as we turn to Him, He will embrace us and bring us home. And so that becomes the image and the power of the story. And that's our, you know, what kind of God do we believe in? We believe in a heavenly father who just embraces us and longs for us to be in a relationship with him. And so by the end of the story, the youngest son is restored to his place in the family. Now his inheritance is gone. You know, that's, that's gone, but he's restored. But here's the thing. The parable begins with these words. Now, a father had two sons, and we often, and I often, focus on that younger son, but what happens with the older son is just as powerful, because this is is a story about two sons that are distant from their father, two sons that are removed from their father, and it's a pendulum, if you will, you have, you've got the rebellious son. You've got the son that doesn't do anything right. But see, on the other end of the story, you've got the obedient son. You've got the stereotypical older son who is obedient, who is faithful, who does everything the father asks him to do, who doesn't ask for his inheritance, who stays loyal, who doesn't leave, doesn't make these horrible life decisions. And when he hears what the father has done for his younger brother, he is ticked. Because he understands that his father's love must be earned. He believes his father's love must be earned. And I have earned it. My brother hasn't earned it. I deserve it. My brother doesn't deserve it. I should receive it. My brother should be judged. And this is the problem. He doesn't understand the depth of his father's love. He is as far away from his father as the younger son is. Because he's far away from his heart. And he doesn't understand that he is blessed. And he will always be blessed. And what the father has for him has never been removed. He has got his inheritance. But he doesn't understand the joy of the father when the the rebellious and the prodigal son comes home. And Jesus tells that story. And he includes that brother into it. Because he has a target audience. If you go back to the very beginning of Luke 15 you find out that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees because they are criticizing him because he's hanging around with sinners, because he's not following social protocol, because he's not doing the things that a good rabbi should do. And Jesus is saying to them, yes, you have kept the law, you've been obedient, you've been faithful, but you are so far from the Father's heart Because you don't see the depth of his love both for you and for others. God is a God of reconciliation. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's what Paul talks about. I believe he he pulls from the story. He says we're given the ministry of reconciliation because we've been reconciled. And he says that while we were yet sinners, while we were far from God, he reconciled us. He brought us back. And for many of us, we have to be careful that we become the older brother that we become the older brother. And this is the trap that falls into those of us who have been good church kids our whole life. Those of us who, who have been in the faith since we were little have maybe never made those horrible kind of decisions because we can easily fall into the trap of believing somehow we have earned God's love. And the scriptures remind us over and over again that all have sinned and fallen short. The scriptures remind us over and over again that even in our following the rules, we're still lavishly loved of God just as the rebellious son. We need to understand the heart of God that longs for all his children to come home. And what the father desperately wants is for the son to celebrate the homecoming of the child, of his younger brother. What God wants us is to be a people that are as hungry to see others come to faith as Jesus was. That, that long to see even the, the most reckless and rebellious and distant from God return to God. I mean, it's a story of incredible hope, but it is also a story of an incredible challenge. We can become very self-righteous. That's the sin of the older son. He is self-righteous. Look how good I've been. And the father says, yeah, you have been good. And everything I have is yours. Your blessing has not been diminished. Your inheritance has not been lost. Celebrate. Your brother coming back again. Do we, do we celebrate that? Do we, do we welcome that back? Or do we get kind of trapped in that self-righteousness? Because there are a lot, the story of our faith is the story of many men and women who have turned around and come back to God. But you know, it's also a story of many who have been close to God their whole life and didn't realize the depth of, of God's love. John Wesley, the, the, the founder of the movement of Methodism, of which we are um, children of, as, as, a, as a United Methodist Church. He grew up. Suzanne Wesley, his mom, nurtured him the faith. He was an Anglican priest. He came to America to, to spread faith to the Native Americans, which ended really badly for him. But, um, but he'd lived close to God his whole life, but it wasn't until he was 35 years old that he has an Aldersgate experience. And he hears it when he's here in the epistle of the Romans, of, of the Romans, the, the book of Of romans being read and martin luther's words and and he says that i felt my heart strangely warmed and for the first time i realized that jesus died for me in my sin he recognized no matter how close he'd been to god he still was desperately in need of that love and that grace of god that's true for all of us this story is a powerful story because it's a picture of who god is and that's an important picture for us to hold true to because it is good news for all of us, whether we're on one end of the continuum or the other. We all need of that love of God. Fifth grade teacher had a little fun competition, contest for her students. She asked them to find what they believed to be the most important sentence written in, in literary history. You know, go back and, and find the sentence you think is the most important sentence that's ever been written. So the kids did their research and they come back with things like four score and seven years ago, or um, all men are created equal, or all people are created equal. Uh, some turn to literature, to be or not to be. You know, what's the most important? Some kids turn to the, to the Bible. And they knew that their teacher was a believer, and she had told them what their favorite verse her favorite verse was. So, like fourteen kids in the class all cited the same scripture, which was, In the beginning God created. You know, and they, they put that as the most important. But one little girl came to her class and she brought a postcard. And she said, I believe this is the most important sentence. And it's a it was a postcard from her stepfather who had just married her mom. And the teacher was a little hesitant. But she went went ahead and let the girl um, do her presentation. And the little girl held up the postcard. And she said, my new stepdad just married my mom. And I didn't know how he felt about me. And I got this card. And I believe it is the most important sentence. And this is what it said. Charlotte, I love you. Charlotte, I love you. That's what Jesus wants us to hear. It's a story that's like that postcard son, daughter, whoever, I love you. And I will do anything to bring you back, to welcome you home, to celebrate my blessings as your blessings. That's the parable of the prodigal son. It is God's I love you to each of us. Let us truly celebrate that. It's a picture of grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for that image and that picture of grace you give us through this story, through the life of Christ. And through this promise that we don't ever get too far from you. You will always bring us back. You will always love us back when we return. Help us to have repentance. Help us to have us grateful hearts. And to celebrate the goodness you've shown to us and the goodness you show to others. And to truly understand that you love us. We give you thanks and we give you praise. In Christ's holy name, amen and amen.